Hello and welcome to the Reinventing Education podcast. I'm Brendan O'Leary, your host. Today, my co-host Rob McLeod is interviewing Chris Barm. Now, Chris is the head of a project-based school in Hakuba, Japan, and is also author of the book Finding the Magic in Middle School. We spoke to him way back in episode nine, and since then, he's been on quite a journey himself. So in this interview, Rob discusses with Chris ways that schools can increase levels of student autonomy, introduce democratic decision-making principles, and the need for us as the adults and schools to shift from instructor to facilitator. We also explore this idea of moving from coercion to consent in driving learning, designing authentic and purposeful learning experiences, and how ChatGPT and AI may transform the future of education. Over to you, Rob and Chris. Yeah, so fill me in, like contribution-wise, work-wise, I don't know if facilitating was the right word, but that you're offering some extension of coaching, but what's the role you're having in the school right now? Yeah, it's grown. uh, It's become something I could never have guessed would ever happen, which is I'm technically the co-head of the school and um, the founder who's wonderful is is there, you know, living it 24-7. And I've been going back and forth every two months, um, spending a week there in person intensively, and then spending about half my time remotely doing all the things um, or trying to figure out which subset of things um, a school leader does can be done from another continent, which is an interesting question I didn't expect to be playing with. Um, so, I mean, the the upsides are that it's, um, it's a really rare opportunity. It's like a, a brand new school founded on compassionate systems thinking and openness to a much higher level of student autonomy, self-direction than almost any school I've seen short of a kind of democratic or free school. Um, so it's and, th- and that's even kind of evolved in the course of this year, which has been a really interesting journey. A, a lot more I could say about that. Uh, but the the personal challenge has been like how to be how to understand what an effective role is in a school community that's all in person, and I'm I'm not in person, and um, I'm I'm feeling the limits of that <laughs> very keenly. So I'm trying to kind of imagine. Uh, at like a the role of a crazy uncle and what could that look like in a school community so that I'm setting expectations I can actually meet from afar uh, but also not not leaving this really amazing opportunity to build something that I've never seen anything like it in the world so yeah can we yeah. dig into that a little bit deeper first of all then clearly I had some of the geography wrong in this so fill me in on the multiple continents piece and then um the some of those limits of being afar but also what are some of the advantages in this context yeah so I'm still doing a handful of projects in the US and writing and I'm still largely based in San Francisco um, but this school is in Nagano so not too far from uh, UWC it's maybe a I don't know hour and a half or something it's a little further kind of more remote. Uh, there's not a bullet train that goes to it. So more effort required to get there. Um, an inc- incredibly beautiful corner of the earth. Um, so it started, um, it's called Hakuba International School. It started as a summer program eight years ago, uh, founded by a woman named Tomoko Kusamoto. And she was a former business person who had moved her family there to kind of get out of the rat race and then realized that there's massive brain drain happening in rural Japan like other places and schools are closing down and they were going to close down the one high school in the entire region. So she first joined to kind of resuscitate that school. And then she realized like, we need to be able to innovate more. Uh, And, you know, an international or independent school has this privilege to be different, um, but also hopefully be useful to 
those who can't take the risks. Uh, and this that kind of hooked me in part because that that was really and is the goal of Millennium School in San Francisco is be a lab, do things public schools can't do yet, but de-risk them, make them feel uh, more appropriate to try in a public setting. So um, yeah, started as a full year round boarding school uh, this school year. So we're just coming to the tail end of it. 20 students, seventh and eighth grades, it'll grow through 12th, you know, add in a year at a time. And it's a totally project-based school. But with um, these kind of experiments that we started around, uh, we started just calling it town hall. It's just a space where students can, or anyone can propose essentially anything and have a process selected for how to um, appropriately discuss and make decisions, ranging from a kind of teal style advice process to um, majority democratic process to a consensus process for the most consequential decisions. And um, it's been really cool to see what happens with that. Like certain students are are taking it, taking us up on the offer to make big proposals and make it a far more student-run place. Um, and others are not, or others are confused, and, and some are resistant, and it, it's complicated. But um, it's becoming a place, I think, that will be pretty unusual in how much students can drive their own learning through it. I didn't quite catch all of the words that you said there, but what I gathered from that was in terms of the decision-making process, you're not beholden to one methodology. So not just democratic, not just consensus, not just advice process. I'm very curious. How do you navigate how, yeah. how to use which one there? That is probably the weakness of the system right now. I don't have a good answer. Um, what we're coming to is, you know, there's a facilitator for each town hall meeting. Proposals are submitted to them in advance. Most or all of them come from students. And the person proposing it kind of proposes what process they think is appropriate. And then the facilitator has the ultimate call. Um, but people can also call a halt if they think the wrong process is being used and basically bump it to the harder process, uh, which is tricky. Like that, that could be misused. But essentially, I think where we can evolve is kind of like a checklist to say, you know, if it, it doesn't involve spending large amounts of money, it's not making a major change to most other people's experience of this school. It's probably the advice process. Um, if it is going to affect many other people in a substantive way or have this range of financial impacts, it's probably a vote. And if it speaks to our core values or maybe evolves or change, changes our vision as a school, that's the consensus process. We have to all be in on that. Very interesting. So we'll see. There's a lot of processes. <laughs> yeah. Well, and one of the things I appreciate about you is your ability to bring in processes. So that's on the kind of structural side, pedagogical side, you've mentioned like kind of uh, project-based, like what's the approach you have for lending student voice or student direction? So we, we're thinking of it as there are two tiers. So kind of default is it's a project that is facilitated by a guide teacher and it's designed so that there's never just one solution or kind of a pre-planned outcome. So students self-direct their journey through that terrain that an adult has facilitated. Uh, tier two would be you want to propose your own complete project, maybe utterly different from anything an adult has planned or conceived of. And I mean, you can always do that on your own time, but we're also offering the chance that you can do that in place of the adult-led projects if it meets you know, a quality standard. And that quality standard, we're still trying to get specific about that, but 
essentially that you know you've thought about outcomes in a in a way that parallels how we design the adult projects so what are the core skills you want from this what does a culmination look like and in advance how would you imagine rating different levels of quality for that by your own definition and what outside kind of expertise or life experience have you brought in to give you perspective on this and if you can show those things and do do the work then great you can opt out of other classes and devote your time to that very interesting so Part of the reason I was motivated, well, one of many reasons I was motivated to reconnect with you was within reinventing education right now, we're kind of finally launching into our green or progressive or counselor centered season, exploring what Mm. this approach to education is like. And we've kind of recently upgraded some of our terminology, uh, trying to get away from this idea of saying progressive for the green via spiral dynamics. Yeah. And rather, we realize the more we talk to people that it's actually when you describe the relationship that clicks with people more. Hmm. So we've started to use this idea of like counselor and counseled to describe the nature of a green or progressive relationship. Hmm. I'm curious to what degree that matches what you're doing, if you think that that's a fair um, analogy or you know tag for the relationship, or if you would add or take anything away from that. Hmm. So where um, could you situate me in the kind of sequence. So if that that's the green tier, what, how are you describing the tiers around it? Yeah. So the kind of traditional or blue, we are describing as like the expert and app- like apprentice. So master and mm. apprentice model, mm. which historically that matches. And then the orange, we had been using the term mainstream, but we've moved towards the idea of like coach and mm. like coach athlete nature of the relationship, differentiated, data-based, your own performance goals, but in relationship to, you know, the Olympics or curriculum standards, right? You know, we're not making up our own standards here, which you can when you move into the more counselor-centered nature, which is more or less like, hey, let's tune into what's relevant to you. Let's tune into what is of importance to you. We have a structure and typically there is some backbone of transdisciplinary skills or Mm -hmm. inquiry process or some larger set of overarching skills that are operating in the background, but you don't have this curriculum in your face at every given second like you do in the in the coach yeah. approach so yeah and oh, that, that's interesting that nature of the counselor and in english we don't have really a word for the other side we have master apprentice coach athlete but like counselor counseled essentially to say like i'm here to also help fill in the you sized gaps mm. in terms of your own seeing just the way a real counselor would to be like oh i've heard this i've heard this notice you haven't mentioned this though i'm wondering if we bring a bit of this into the mix would that help you know, the person to walk along your guy the way with you, yeah. they're not doing the work for you. Yeah, they're there with you on the journey and there to support you. Yeah, well, I, I resonate with all that. Um, it's a, I think maybe because I'm still in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley wor- worlds, the word coach actually feels different here. It's often used in the counseling sense or even as a high level of that. So that's just my own geographic semantic bias. Uh, but overall, that makes sense. Uh, the the frame I've been using around it is just simpler is just the shift from instructor to facilitator and how that's a, a deep mindset shift for any of us educators or parents, uh, which is you could parallel exactly what you're describing, probably papers over some of the nuance in the in the three parts. So I, I like that. We'd gone with would not to give too much behind the scenes, but we originally mm-hmm. tested out facilitator. And then we actually had the exact reverse issue you were saying, which is, oh, no, people end up thinking of this much more orange coach 
coach role mm. as the facilitator versus interesting what we're trying to get to of the more personal nature with the counselor so yeah yeah well one of the things you said maybe is another way to make sure it clicks into the right slot which is like fundamentally does the adult have a destination in mind for the child and they might be coaching them toward it or they might be drill sergeanting them toward it but if they're holding that then this is a certain kind of relationship and probably ends up coercing them in some way or another or manipulating uh, whereas whatever you call it uh counseling or facilitating ideally you're you're curious about what's going to emerge here and you're not sure that you have the answer at all let's pause there and expand that because that's that's the huge jumping off point i think in at least in terms of like our model as we're seeing it which is like at the core of the expert like apprentice master apprentice model you have lineage tradition and just what works mm. That you're, as you were just saying, trying to orient them towards or force them into or point out all the mistakes of how they're not there yet. You know, the master knows that you're not a master yet because you cannot do this. And I will keep pointing out the mistakes that make you yeah. not a master until we get you there. Then with the coach, there's this piece of the curriculum of like, you know, we're aiming for gold medal for everybody. We're aiming for maximum peak personal performance. But everything we do is in relationship curriculum. Our concept of progress yeah. for you is in relationship to the curriculum. And in a similar way, both stand heavily on this strong foundation of either lineage or curriculum in some way. But then the fundamental shift that happens in that counselor model is this idea of like, no, it's emergent. And as you said, it's the first one that really brings in a, yeah, I'm not sure where this is going to go or, you know, in the extreme, like even how well it's going to go the first or second or third or 20th time in approaching it. And that that would make you sound unprofessional in the mm -hmm. first two. But it sounds like it's almost like a, a design feature in some ways with the counselor. But maybe you can help me flesh this out because you're actually living this and doing this with with people. Yeah. What are some of what are some more of the characteristics of what you're seeing that makes this place so unique? Two things are coming to mind. Um, one is about how in those first two levels, there's a curriculum and you're fundamentally trying to do whatever it takes to drive students through. In the facilitator or counselor mode, there is still a curriculum, but it's mostly about how to be as the adult. And ideally, you have quite a set of tools and awarenesses and ways of responding to things. And you're going to selectively offer those when they're requested. And Can you give me an example or a, even yeah. a situation perhaps to make this concrete? Yeah. So one of the most underdeveloped uh, skills in schools that is most useful in real life, I think, is conflict resolution. So you can teach a workshop on conflict resolution that will probably bore most people to tears, or um, you know some tools for conflict resolution. You're facilitating, I'm thinking maybe of an advisory type of space, or it could be one-on-one, -on -one, and someone comes to you and says you know, my friend won't talk to me anymore. Okay, now is the moment. <laughs> this curriculum that's part of you, first, because you're comfortable with it before you're even getting to a tool. It's like, okay, that's normal. This happens. This is part of human experience. We've learned ways to address this. You know, is that useful to you right now? Or is it something where you may already know what to do, but you just need someone to talk it through? I can be, I can serve in that way. You have no idea what to do. Okay, here's here's a tool. This this might work. Be worth trying. 
Uh, so that's one way where the curriculum is in you embodied and your own ability to look on your own human experience and reference that, make use of that for a younger person. Uh, the other one that was coming to mind or just layer on all this is about coercion that, you know, the master and apprentice model is awesome um, when you choose it. <laughs> like how cool, like I, I want to learn, you know, how to play guitar. Uh, truly, this is a personal project. I would be happy to apprentice myself to a master musician who would really give me the gift of their knowledge. Uh, obviously, utterly different in a school system where you're not choosing to be there, you're not choosing to be assessed, compared, then you have the toxicity of that model. Yeah, where where does consent fit into your counselor model? I think in an ideal facilitation, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or a small group, and I think ideally students should get both, um, everything is an invitation. You can't ever force a student. You shouldn't ever force a student to speak something they don't want to speak, uh, you know, maybe only in matters of serious safety concerns. Would you override that? Can you say more about that? Mm, the safety <laughs> things? Not or, even so much the just... safety, but just, yeah, that idea of invitations, any of those things. I'd be just interested to zoom in on that because that's that's a huge one, right? Like, I think it's one of the cultural stereotypes of like, oh, school, you know, it's, it's a bit like work. You just have to do it. You have to yeah. go and we'll just do it and then it's done and then you can do your own thing after or, you know, those are the, the obvious negative tropes of it. But yeah, um, what you just said, I feel like flies in the face of a lot of conceptions around how schools work. Yeah. And it's a rarity, I think, to for any student to feel like consent is requested. Uh, and just increasingly, I, I kind of can't stop thinking about this. Even, you know, great project-based schools that are doing such innovative, real-life relevant projects have sometimes no conception of asking for consent and very few qualms coercing students to doing those projects that we adults are so excited about. And I think sometimes we um, we fool ourselves because maybe we're taking students from a more traditional school and they show up in a project-based environment and this feels way more fun. And we think we have just knocked this out of the park and we have legitimately made a huge improvement. But if we're still underneath it, coercing students, basically forcing them to do this design, then we're just missing part of the human potential that's there, which is for them to discover what it is to drive their own learning, to make their own mistakes, to feel authorship over it, and to feel like they are you know, sovereign in some way, and that this is not a place where compliance is kind of the, the underlying real value. Mm -hmm. So one of the themes that you know we really want to dig into over the next however many handful of episodes in the season of kind of digging deeper into this counselor approach is just some of the fundamentally different cultural values or ideas that come along with this approach to education and why I think that example you just gave is the perfect example, which is like, oh, we're changing some of the mechanisms, like we're doing inquiry based or student led projects and, you know, these sorts of things. But it's still coming from like, you know, you can see me doing the quadrant move here on the screen, but still coming <laughs> yeah. from that lower left piece, the the cultural uh, resonance piece of like, no, no, but you, you just have to do what we say and your consent, you wouldn't even it's not even on the table. You don't even have to think about that. It's like, it's a given that you just have to do what we put in front of you. And wanting to tease apart this idea of sometimes we get these Frankenstein pieces where, you know, we get a counselor method, but being brought into a coach 
structure and perhaps being carried out by an expert in their heart leaning person. And you get this at times interesting, beautiful mix and at times uh, draining, not aligned uh, mess (laughs) that can happen. Sorry, I'm getting off into a tangent. The piece I wanted to come back to, though, is some of what are some of the cultural ideas that you have about what a student is, what the importance of their phase of life right now is, and who you are as a teacher or as an adult within this context that might stand as contrast to what you might find in a in a coach or expert school? What are some of the new beliefs or social values you're bringing to this that you wouldn't hear maybe from staff in the other schools? Hmm. First one that comes to mind, it, we've been using this phrase a lot in Hakuba, is the idea of a generative community. You know, what does it mean to be first just a group of adults who are developing ourselves, uh, which I'm taking to mean uh, we recognize that we're a process. We are very imperfect. Uh, We frequently make mistakes. Sometimes we break down. Um, We are continually changing. We're pursuing our own growth quite actively, and we don't expect to look in the future like we look now. Um, If we are living that, that's, that's the soil. Like That's where we're beginning. And then students enter that community. They are, by definition, living that. Whereas adults, we can kind of try to forget or repress the fact that we're still growing and evolving. Harder to do that, I think, when you're, you know, 12 or 15. Um, And they are witnessing adults being courageously vulnerable. You know, I made this mistake or I'm willing to reference a story from my own messy teen years when it's relevant and appropriate, normalize something maybe you're experiencing. Uh, I'm willing to accept that the way you're showing up is not what I thought my student would be like. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to be changed by that. Those are some of the mentalities. And, you know, to give a more tangible example, say you're advising and you're in a group and you're you're the facilitator as an adult and you want to talk about, I don't know, say, um, you know, back to the conflict example, you, you want to, you know, teach something about that. But students walk in and someone says, can I share something? And it turns out that they are having deep questions about their gender, you know, just to site one. And that as a facilitator, you are ready to now instantly toss all of whatever you have planned to talk about and see if you can make this space safe and active so that they can explore that, which may mean saying close to nothing, or it may mean saying a lot if that's required, but you're accepting and open to what what might be needed. So I wonder if this is the transition point here to shift a little bit. The initial impulse for reaching out to you again was your newsletter titled What Are Humans For? from April 15th. Um, I know this came out via email. Is there a place online that people can find this? Uh, I I usually put them on Twitter um, or they can subscribe on my Substack, which is called Growing Wiser. All right. Yeah, let's direct people there. So growingwiser.com? Um, I think you have to get it through Substack. Uh, if okay. they go to my, my website, uh, chrisbalm.com, they can subscribe there. All right. We'll put a link in the description to this. Uh, your Twitter handle? I'm not also on Twitter. Just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not on it much, but uh, it's chrisbalm. And uh, Instagram is the same. I use that more. All right. So what are humans for? Uh, you had a beautiful analogy about first wave, second wave, third wave coffee. And now I'm realizing, <laughs> oh, that could have been my... My, my tie-in between our models of the experts and all those sorts of things. But, um, yeah, what was it? You point out five things about in this age of AI in the age of chat GPT and us figuring out about, figuring out what this means to what we do 
in schools. And again, tying this idea that with this counselor approach to education, counselor and beyond, um, we reimagine what humans are for. I'd like to go through all five points. Hmm. Maybe I just rhyme them off so people have the heads up, the table of contents, and then we kind of go through each one. Sure. And then I have a, a tricky, maybe first question to throw you away. <laughs> okay, uh, let's do it. Regarding them. So the, the five uh, things that you mentioned, but what it means to be human at this time. So teach us to be embodied. Treat each other as humans, not machines. Use our emotions as the highly evolved functions they are. Embrace one of our species specialties. We are tool makers and design for originality, purpose, and authenticity. And what's really cool to me, sorry, two side stories, and then I'll get into my question with you. I read this, it resonated with me right away. And I felt you were the first person that I'd heard that kind of bundled all this together. And I was like, oh, yeah, Chris has really got his finger on something here. Then over the last month and a half, I'm a part of like a few teachers, educator, chat GPT, Facebook groups, I'm part of a few um, heads of school, Facebook groups that are all figuring out what to do with chat GPT and all this sort of stuff. What's funny is I've seen all five of those points brought up by separate individuals now mm. saying, well, in the face of this, it's the time that we accept we are tool makers. I saw one today. I was going to cite it with you of like, oh, someone put your paragraph into their own words kind of a thing. So it's just really cool that I think you've really hit something um, or kept, sorry, you've really captured something with this. Hmm. And uh, to maybe launch into those five, I put your article into chat GPT. I uh -huh. asked it if I was to interview the author of this <laughs> yes. article. Oh. All right. What would be an effective way to begin the discussion? ChatGP discussed asking you, Chris, you discussed the need for third wave schools, which mm. I would say for anyone who's listened to our conversation so far, that's referring to the green counselor uh, approach to education. You discussed the need for third wave schools to focus on developing skills such as self-awareness, empathy, and creativity. How do you envision incorporating these aspects into the existing education system? And what specific changes or approaches would you recommend to educators and parents to foster a more human-oriented learning environment? Ooh, thank you, ChatGPT. Okay, well, it's so perfect that it's coming from ChatGPT because part of the reason for that article was the feeling that the arrival of that will push us, could push us. I tend to be more of an optimist in this more humane direction because it it makes it so obvious that a lot of the things we've been doing in school are basically trying to make humans better than computers at computer-oriented tasks, <laughs> such as quickly recalling specific nuggets of information. And if we didn't already think that was dumb, I think ChatGPT makes it very obvious that we're, we'll never win that battle. And we really shouldn't be, you know, wasting really good years of kids' lives trying to get them to be a better computer than a computer. So uh, yes, I think this can work in traditional schools. And I really hope that's where things go. And we'll see, we're already seeing, you know, some schools will resist it by trying to ban ChatGPT or trying to create software that finds a use of AI. And I really think that's an incredibly losing battle. <laughs> uh, much better to use it to augment ourselves and anything that suddenly feels like I could never possibly discern if a student was cheating, that's a great signal to stop doing that particular activity or mode of learning. And these five things you just referenced are just the beginning of a menu of things that we could spend our time on now that maybe we don't, we can't really justify writing five paragraph essays all day. So 
<laughs> that's my oh, beginning point with it. I had this thought this morning, though, I was thinking like, oh, well, maybe writing now we'll see that it's more important, not about the finished piece product, because obviously I can do that in 30 seconds in Ch Chad GPT. But the actual process of the engaging with ideas, the clarifying one's thinking that process. Yeah, this is a side conversation, but just that idea of like now this frees us up that products don't matter as much as the actual process. And very few of our educational systems have been set up to monitor and assess the process due to the yep. effectiveness and if more so efficiency of just assessing final product. Exactly. And that's that last point, you know, design for originality. If that's what you're going for, which I think we ought to be since AI can do high average work more or less instantly, then yeah, you'd focus much more on the process. You'd have a much wider range of acceptable outcomes and you might have a lot more fun <laughs> as well in this whole process. Yeah, you were to that design for originality, purpose, and authenticity. What, what opportunities do you see AI opening up for students and educators to practice more authenticity? I'll just share an example from my own life um, that hopefully connects, which is I feel like sometimes the parts of my work that feel the least exciting are when I feel like a human router. I'm just passing information from one party to the next, summarizing it, um, attempting to pull a reference and send it to someone who needs it. It'd be great to stop doing that, <laughs> that maybe AI can can do that kind of thing far better. And instead, you know, the parts of my job that are the most fun for me are when I'm taking a creative risk, you know, a, a what if, what if we experimented in this way? Uh, I'm thinking, you know, as an educator in that regard, but I think there are so many ways where that applies to students. Uh, back to our earlier part of the conversation probably requires it to not be coerced. It's hard to coerce someone into being creative and playful. Um, if you can gain their consent, make the invitation um, and show that what you're going for is something that will surprise them and maybe charm someone or move someone, then you have the chance to do something original. And this, I feel these all feed off of one another. So if we go back to the, the first point of teach us to be embodied, first of all, what do you mean by embodied? And how do you see this as a, a possibility in, yeah, this green counselor approach and beyond? Well, so the, the starting metaphor of that whole article for people who hadn't read it is that you know, the earlier versions of schooling were first based on factories, you know, very explicitly, and then later trying to create knowledge workers, quote unquote. And uh, Sir Ken Robinson called that brains on a stick, where we remove the body because it's very inconvenient and pour knowledge into the brain. So that's still how schools look, as far as I can tell, 99%, where the body is a, a real inconvenience and, you know, something to be carefully controlled, like asking for permission to go to the bathroom, uh, you know, PE class being regularly cut and an incredibly small part of someone's day. So long story short, teaching us to be embodied would start with acknowledging that we are in bodies and that the, the needs and the knowing of our bodies is fundamental to who we are as humans. You know, our classrooms can't have us sitting still all day. Um, that doesn't work for most people, maybe even, even worse for boys, potentially, um, that not only do we need to move to be happy and content, but through movement and through awareness of our body and skills like interoception, we gain a lot of wisdom and insight and skill that is basically undeveloped in current schools. Interoception? That's an interoception. Yeah, it's... Um, it's the it's the sensing of how the inside of our body is, you know, from 
you know, what your stomach is doing right now to, you know, maybe aches and pains you have, or that kind of desire to move um, that I know I feel after sitting in a chair for even <laughs> 10 or 15 minutes. Um, it's the interior sensing. Mm. And to me, that's so closely tied to the, your third point of use our emotions as the highly evolved functions they are. Emotions also really get in the way of a lot of education. Yeah. Uh, if you're trying to have brains on stick, um, there have been many moves towards more emotional education in mainstream education within the kind of coach centric world. I'm even impressed the Ontario curriculum in grade, no, in senior kindergarten has uh, mindfulness built into it now, like mindfulness practices. Mm. That seems even 10 years ago when I was in the system, that seems wildly um, steps forward. But I think this is more than just, or I assume you're pointing to more than just kind of basic emotional intelligence introductions. What in your more complex two-tiered educational approach of teacher-led kind of large-scale projects and potentially student-led projects and the nature of the organization structures you talked about, how are emotions welcomed, addressed, mm. processed, dealt with? Because that's where the human side of all this can get very complicated quickly. I think the adults in school create the ceiling for 95% of students about how developed they'll become in any domain. But it's Especially, it seems obvious in the more of the inner work, you know, which emotions is a part. So if we as the educator that they're looking to in a given space aren't comfortable with our own emotions, are obviously repressing them, which happens all the time, um, are speaking one way while the signals that our body is sending are revealing a totally different emotional state, you know, are sweeping their emotions under the rug in order to get to content, then we just hold them back they become emotionally underdeveloped. And without being too negative, because I, I am an optimist about this, I think our whole culture is emotionally underdeveloped and that that is you know, repeated in schools when we don't teach to it. So I think the first step is for us as adults. Now, how could we develop ourselves to be more accepting of our own emotions? And I am working on this myself, and it's not easy. Um, and how can we be accepting of it in our professional spaces and say, this is, a, it's silly to distinguish that as a personal thing that it doesn't belong here because we are here broadcasting our emotions all the time anyways. Um, how can we be more accepting of it in students, you know, with spaces like advisory where they are invited, uh, not coerced to be vulnerable and revealing about their emotional world and usually then realize that it's normal and there are tools for this and others get it. Uh, then it's, you know, first order change is then actually you're a better brain on a stick when you're allowed to have emotions. Um, but then obviously what we're going for is that you are an embodied emotional being who has an amazing brain and all of that functions better when all of those parts are recognized. That's really interesting because Brendan and I, one of the characteristics that we've attributed to this approach is this idea that all of you is welcome. Mm. And that in these previous two iterations of school, there is some part of you that you had to edit out of the picture if it interfered. And yeah, I'd be curious if you had any anything else to add to that idea of like, all of you is welcome in this school contact. I love that. You know, I would add a line I put in the article is that no human being is faulty. It's, it is impossible to justify that. So all the school is saying when it wants to say that is that this the school is faulty. We, we don't know how to invite you to be you. And that's an easy kind of um, maybe broad stroke thing to say. But I think if we actually work with it, it leads to some major changes in how schools function. Yeah. And your idea of treat each other as humans, not 
machines. <laughs> I think it's probably the way to summarize that thought. Right. Yeah. A machine can be faulty for sure. And maybe you need to change a part out or, you know, whatever, but not a human. Yeah. And even just this idea, like the last sentence there, if there's a problem, help a fellow human out by understanding their developmental needs and helping them find better ways to meet them. I think there there is an expert version of that. I think there is a coach version of that. But I think the counselor one, I think, has the widest scope on that because again, all problems are allowed in the mix, I would say. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I think the counselor version has the most uh, opportunity there. I mean, to give an example, I think one of the core developmental needs for adolescents is to be social. It, it might be the most core. And most schools are not designed to support that. In fact, they spend a ton of energy repressing that. So if you're in the expert model, uh, how would you require students to be social in a way that still felt like you were in control of like that, that would be tricky to do. You'd probably end up really wanting to channel it and and manage it. Um, in the counselor model, there are lots of uh, greater freedoms you can take. You know, a team can work on something and can evolve in ways you didn't expect. Uh, an advisory group can become really close and can also go through rupture and repair. And you understand that to be exactly what students need to figure out the social world as core developmental drive for that age. Yeah, and your fourth, or in our order that we've gone through them, the final piece here, embrace one of our species specialties. We are tool makers. Um, Designing schools for human does not mean ignoring technology. Yeah. What what do you mean by 2023 tool makers? Mm. It, it means to not be scared, I think. I, I, well, let me clarify that. I think actually some, some amount of fear is justified in, in our tools, but to not run away from them as a result. You know, it was interesting when ChatGPT came out that the New York City Department of Education the next week banned it on all of their devices and attempted to shut it out of their networks. So that's not embracing our role as tool makers. You know, what I'm suggesting is that we use it to augment ourselves and and to do it in a playful way. Uh, that's We're always going to create tools that scare ourselves because change is scary and, and our abilities are growing in places we've never noticed before. AI is only one of them. I think genomics is equally scary and fascinating and just maybe hasn't had a splash recently in the last year that AI has. So genomics, yeah. for anyone unfamiliar with the term, how would you describe that in a nutshell? I guess I'm referring to human editing of our genome. Um, which is, you know, being explored in all kinds of ways, good and bad. And I think like AI is something that's not stoppable. And hopefully we we put guardrails and, and regulate, but um, we are too curious and too unruly of a species to guide this with some central wisdom. So we're, we're going to build and we may as well play with it as young people so that we can manage the complexity of it later. Yeah. And can you can you bring this home for us in terms of an example in your role as a leader in a school where you have used AI chat GPT to augment your playfulness in the role? Yeah. Um, it's a, a personal one coming up is uh, I've started when I need to, you know, put together a set of ideas or maybe a presentation. Um, I, I have chat GPT on one window on my screen and a, a document on the other, and I'm playing with how to use it as a co-pilot and finding it pretty fun. And in certain situations and tasks like a huge accelerator and it's it feels like when google came out uh, and i'm you know dating myself there but it's it's exciting to let my mind move faster and i've seen that in students too and and i've seen students struggle with it and use it but claim that they didn't use it and those are just that's now the territory that we get to explore you know let's use it a lot and let's be 
ethical about it and keep exploring what it means and when we how we disclose it. But trying to shut it down is, I think, kind of pointless at this point. So I've thought of it this as a thought experiment, just to now be a little critical to what we have said through this yeah. last hour or so. You know, I was having a chat with a colleague the other day where I said, but weren't people having the same conversation like 20 plus years ago when the Google search bar overtook Yahoo and you know, searching the internet got much more powerful that, oh, now, you know, the answer is right there when you need it. And, you know, weren't people kind of having the same, like the sky is falling for education conversations then, you know, that they are now, or maybe even, you know, when YouTube was first on the scene that, oh, now everything's just going to be able to be found there. Can you also make a case that 10 years from now, this isn't going to fundamentally transform the way we're doing things? Or have we, we've had the Kool-Aid, we think this is a big deal. <laughs> yeah, I, I've had that thought too. And, you know, whether it's Google or Wikipedia or further back, you know, cheap calculators, those all seem like they were going to break the the order. Um, I actually think if ChatGPT is just where things ended, that, yeah, it's not alone that big of a deal. It would just be another kind of crack in that idea. But my guess is that where it's going and the way that it will be indistinguishable from human conversation is going to change society a lot. And schools usually are um, lagging. I think they don't they don't drive social change as much as I wish <laughs> as an educator, but more uh, technology shocks them into changing. And I, I think that's more likely than not to happen with AI. And th Chris, I think it's at this point we reveal to everybody that this conversation <laughs> has been generated by ChatGPT and we used a Chris Baum and Rob McLeod voice simulator to uh, to carry out today's podcast episode. That, that really can happen, I think, in the, in the very near future. And I've which heard is... three-hour Joe Rogan podcasts that have been completely generated uh, wow. with the guest voice and topics and all that. Well, I didn't listen to the whole thing. I listened to one minute of it and I went, oh yeah, that <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to distinguish that from an actual episode. Yeah, yeah. And um, back to the question of originality and authenticity, that's going to become a really live edge, I think, for all of us. Yeah. I did want to discuss your book, Finding the Magic in Middle School, Tapping into the Power and Potential of the Middle School Years. I would like to invite you back for another conversation to do that. Can I invite you back in a few weeks or months to follow up on that? Happy to. Would love to. But maybe just as uh, a touchstone for that, if someone's interested in getting the book, what's the best or what's one of the ways to find it? Yeah. Uh, again, on my website, uh, chrisbalm.com or Amazon or other booksellers uh, can access it. Uh, there's an audiobook, an ebook, and and the regular book, and it it'll have a lot of what we just explored. It didn't go into AI, but it's especially about this idea of how if we understand kids developmentally, particularly middle school, which I think is often where we we mess up the worst <laughs> in designing good developmental environments, whether at home or at school. Um, if we did understand them developmentally, what could we do? What could their experience be? Um, and hopefully, the book gets pretty practical about that. So. Yeah, I would love to explore it more. Cool. We'll do that another day to bring things to some kind of summary. I guess one summary note that's coming to mind, uh, this won't do it all justice, is that if this all seems complicated and out of our control, whether AI or just how the heck do we change schools, I really think that the locus of control and, and what's important is changing who we are as adults. Uh, I believe in kids deeply that they're, they're going to grow to the potential that we allow for the most part. And so it's if we expand ourselves developmentally and become more accepting and aware of our inner worlds, more able to manage complexity 
in the outer world and, and more able to love, then they will naturally grow to at least where we are. So if that helps it feel more controllable, this is what I tell myself, at least. <laughs> Can't change the whole school system, but I know I've got some work to do personally, and that's going to have 24-7 impact on anyone around me. So that that's where the obvious work is. Yeah, the idea of, I heard, I heard it once said, the idea of like frequency holders, that it's sort of like mm. that a role is not to like force students to be on our wavelength or bandwidth. I'm probably messing up the analogy, the, the symbolism <laughs> I'm of with this you. now. It's okay. <laughs> but just the idea that we can present a frequency that might not be otherwise found in their environment that they can interact with, engage with, and at least spend time around and to become familiar with that I think developmentally is so important. I had a long series of chats with uh, Brendan and a friend of ours from Canada in a group chat, leaving voice messages back and forth. Where we really talked about how in our experiences, we were really lucky to have one or two role models but that we felt like the majority of the adults were not great role models for us, for the kind of adults we realized we eventually realized we wanted to become. Mm. And I, I really appreciate the, the nature of your work, where I feel that is a core component of your work, which says, no, 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 you know, we as adults in some way need to reintegrate being the expert or the, you know, the elder in the community, or at least someone within this system to be looked up to and not out of duty or out of rank, but out of earned integrity and earned authority to say, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I might be someone worth listening to and being around from time to time that it's not only our way to get it's not only our job to get out of the way for students and let them flourish, but that we also are there as as a I never like using the word container, but that we are there in some way to be of support for them. Exactly. I, I just think of it as we are broadcasting always. It's just the nature of our species and how we've evolved to pick up even the most subtle signals from someone else. So any, it's silly to think that we are just transmitting words. Uh, and there, there's another key difference with AI. You know, we are broadcasting every tiny expression, uh, tone of voice, you know, how we breathe. All of that is picked up. We're amazingly good at that. So we make a small step toward being a little more whole that will immediately, inherently, without having to think about it, be broadcast. And it's funny to me in schools that often it's like the art teacher who has been given like the most liberty to be that kind of whole person. And people find often this, you know, unexpected freedom around them. Maybe they don't even reflect on till later because that person was just invited to be more real, less constrained. But uh, all of us can do that. Uh, it's it's available. Cool. That feels like a natural wrap-up spot there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. This was fun, Rob, as always. Yeah.